Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knaxit again uh, for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with uh, two guests. I'd like to welcome Dr. Kelly MacArthur, who's a Mohs surgeon and assistant professor of dermatology at the Washington University in St. Louis uh, Division of Dermatology, as well as Dr. Brian Bauman, who's an assistant professor of radiation oncology at the same institution. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Thanks so much for the invitation. Great to be here on, on the show. So today we're going to be um, talking about a commentary or a multidisciplinary recommendation paper uh, that the two of you were the uh, first authors on titled Management of Primary Skin Cancer During a Pandemic, uh, Multidisciplinary Recommendations. And for our listeners who have not yet come across this paper, it's published outside of the dermatology literature in the more global journal titled Cancer, uh, which is great because it highlights, again, dermatology's role in the oncology world as a whole and uh, gives bigger access or greater access of these guidelines to um, the rest of the non-dermatology world. And so, in general, I think the majority of these podcasts are independent of of time and day of recording, but I think we have to set the stage here uh, and the time at which Kelly, Brian, and I are, are talking. And so the manuscript was first received April 4th, 2020, which uh, at least to me seems like ages ago at this point. And hmm. at that point, there had been 300,000 cases in the U.S., with 10,400 deaths. And we are now recording uh, in the uh, end of July, and we're at 3.9 million cases in the U.S. with 141,000 deaths. So both our death rate and our incidence rate have increased by by tenfold. And that's something we're going to talk about um, as we talk about the the way this paper um, was meant to have an impact in April and the value of the paper now. So I, I want to open the floor to both of you and just sort of walk us through how uh, this paper came to be. Thanks, Thomas. Uh, we wrote this at a time when the COVID pandemic had just begun. Early March was an unprecedented time for all of us um, in trying to understand the impact of this virus and how to best provide care to our skin cancer patients when there were no clear guidelines. We recognize the difficulty in navigating these uh, conversations with our patients of treatment risks and benefits when exposure risks of the virus were not yet clear. And most skin cancer patients, we should remember, are in the high-risk category of complications should they become exposed to COVID. Not to mention the start of the pandemic also brought increasing concern regarding ICU bed and PPE supply shortages 
throughout our nation. So we felt as providers, it was our responsibility to provide both safe patient care while also balancing public health needs. And I would argue the the manuscript or the paper is just as applicable in July as it was in in April. But um, Brian Kelly, maybe Brian, you first walk us just through for you as a radiation oncologist and for Kelly as a dermatologist, most surgeon, how your practice evolved in terms of volume and protection from February until uh, closing time today. Sure. So. I mean, when the pandemic first hit, as, as we all remember, there was um, so much fear and concern and so little information. So I, I think that um, uh, we, like everyone else in medicine, were you know eagerly listening to um, data coming out of the CDC and, and the various um, government websites and, and the folks at Johns Hopkins. Um, you know, I think we tried to um, you know, triage patients as best we could. So patients uh, at highest risk for um, COVID complications. So the elderly people with comorbidities. And, and in our paper, we provided the data that was available at that time on helping to identify who those higher risk patients were and, and then providing doctors with their risk of death or serious hospitalization. Um, and then we also, you know, wanted to try to identify the patients who's who are at greatest risk, not just from COVID, but from delays in terms of treatment. So who is at greatest oncologic risk if we delayed their treatment? And to try to strike a balance and engage in sort of shared decision making. So with respect to, you know, skin cancer patients, I mean, there was um, agreement very early on with my practitioners that you know, Merkel cell, for instance, should be prioritized. You know, as a radiation oncologist, we don't see a lot of melanomas except in the palliative setting. Um, so we didn't see a lot of melanomas, but we do see a fair amount of squamous cell cases, both for definitive and for uh, post-operative or adjuvant radiation. And uh, in those cases, it was really shared decision-making with the patients. But one of the things that we tried to do is delay patients' treatments when we could, uh, and if we couldn't delay, then take advantage of hypofractionation, which in radiation oncology means giving a higher dose uh, per treatment and fewer total treatments to limit their time in the clinic. What about you, Kelly, in terms of the realities of your day-to-day life, which I imagine were similar for all of us, but there are some differences across the, the country based on, you know, to what degree one is a hot spot. Um, now or back then, um, tell me about your your volume, your your practice, February, March, um, May, and then to what degree you're you're back to a anything that looks like a pre-COVID state or not. Good question. So early in the surge, I think um, we were lucky in being in the Midwest in St. Louis um, that we were fortunate that our institution um, was able to provide PPE and we certainly had the clinic resources to continue seeing our patients. There was great uncertainty and patients were quite concerned in coming into clinics, so it led to some lengthy risk-benefit conversations with our patients. We did initially prioritize Merkel cell cancer patients, melanoma patients, 
T2B and greater cutaneous squamous cell cancer patients and those rare tumors like sarcomas. Uh, the challenging part, which is what I mentioned before, is that most of our patients with skin cancers are in those in that category of higher risk of COVID-19 complications should they become exposed. So there were very lengthy discussions with our patients of um, truly what are risks benefits in this uh, new scene of the pandemic. Um, back then and even currently, we've um, done everything we possibly can to minimize exposure risks. Um, we're limiting the amount of patients based upon how many rooms um, we have in the unit, um, especially for our most patients, since they spend many hours with us um, in terms of minimizing their transmission risks. Each most patient is offered to stay in their own room for the duration of their stay. And certainly all of the wonderful things that the AAD and the ACMS has um, published in terms of recommendations to um, keep patients safe in terms of um, just hygiene and social distancing, wearing PPE use, um, we're just, we're, we're keeping all of those guiding principles um, to try and do the best for our patients. And I think arguably the, the one um, shift has been that I think in February, a large reason for our uh, deferment of procedures, and uh, if we look at some studies, um, skin cancer biopsy volume, surgical volume was down 50, 60, or more percent for many um, institutions in, in March and April. Um, and at that point, it was a combination of PPE preservation, realizing that Mohs requires gloves, masks, goggles, et cetera as well as the um, protection from infection and the spread and transmission both to patients and to practitioners. I'd like to think that we've been able, with the exception of some currently exploding hotspots, we've been able to have a more predictable use of our PPE and um, the resource limitations have been a little bit more relaxed in Cleveland, I would say, in the month of July, but certainly the protection from infection as we look at our total count and our density in Ohio, Florida, et cetera, is, is more pertinent than ever. So um, you mentioned a couple of times now the overlap between those at risk for skin cancer bad outcomes and those at risk for COVID bad outcomes. But um, I, I'd like for the two of you to sort of drill down and just review that for us where there's overlap in terms of that potential for bad outcomes. Yeah, sure. Um, happy to happy to do that. You know, so I mean, data suggests that if you have cancer of any kind, that your mortality rate um, is is higher. So some of the the early data coming out of China showed that if you had COVID and you carried a cancer diagnosis, you know, you had a five point six percent rate of death. Now, you know, I think uh, skin cancer patients are likely to all the things being equal have maybe less risk of, of death than uh, some other cancers, but, but that's still a concern. And then when you factor in patients with other comorbidities, so patients with cardiovascular disease, they had an almost 11% risk of death, chronic respiratory disease, a 6.3% risk of death, hypertension, 6%. So I think you'd be, you know, hard pressed uh, to find you know, many most patients in the 60, 70, and 80-year range who don't have at least one of those problems. 
or are on their way toward developing one of those problems. And, you know, data from Italy says that if you had, you know, more than three medical comorbidities, you know, that was 48% of all deaths were patients with three or more medical comorbidities. So, you know, the average age um, for diagnosis of, of a melanoma is, you know, 60 to 69 for basal cells of mid 60s. For Merkel, it's in the 70s and it's sort of late 80s for a squamous cell. And, you know, your risk of, um, of mortality, if you're in that, those age ranges is anywhere from, you know, 4.3% to 27%. Uh, if you contract COVID, especially, you know, for the, uh, greater than 85 patient population. And when you factor in that, you know, skin cancers are more common than all other cancers combined, I mean, this becomes a, a major public health, uh, issue to sort of make sure that we are as a, as an entire, uh, skin cancer field sort of appropriately triaging patients. One of the things that we wanted to do with the, with the paper is, is also just provide in one place data, um, on outcomes by stage so that a provider could quickly glance at this at our table one and kind of get a sense for, okay, if I delay this patient's treatment and worst case scenario, they are upstaged. Um, during that delay, what is that going to mean in terms of their risk for death or their risk for developing distant mets? And, you know, fortunately, if, if it's a cutaneous melanoma and it's a relatively early stage one, that risk doesn't increase much if you bump up to the next T stage. But if it's a, a T2A um, squame based on Brigham, you know, the, the risk of distant mets jumps from, or, or, or disease-specific mortality jumps from not even 1% to 22%. So we wanted to sort of incorporate information on staging and how that directly relates to oncologic outcomes, and then also look at data around the impact of treatment delays as assessed during non-COVID situations. So what can we glean from the existing literature to try to predict the outcomes associated with a delay due to COVID. In many ways, this is a great new application sort of of staging systems in the real world. You know, we put so much time and energy, especially as dermatologists, into the formulation of these newer or updated staging systems like the Brigham and Women. And uh, now, beyond the routine risk stratification we have in our in our tumor boards, this is really what it ultimately will come down to uh, weighing that stage versus all the comorbidities and risks that are otherwise inherent to the patient. And so I'd like to go through these cancers. Again, the, the paper highlights squamous cell, melanoma, Merkel cell. Kelly, the first thing will be a curveball, which is... When is it appropriate to do surgery on basal cells? <laughs> Good question. So I think that in, in getting this panel together, I think that there, there were a lot of um, different gray areas. In terms of basal cell, I think that we all agreed upon that basal cells could be safely um, deferred, safely postponed um, up to three months as long as the patient wasn't particularly symptomatic. I felt comfortable um, talking with the patient. So certainly any patient that was diagnosed with basal cells during this time frame, I still talked with them, talked with them about risks and benefits and let them know about exposure risks um, as well as the risk of delaying treatment. Where it became more interesting was uh, 
a particularly large basal cell, for instance, on an eyelid. Some of these are, it, they may not be symptomatic, but um, certainly in sensitive areas. So there were kind of, every patient needs to be treated on a case-by-case basis. Um, I think that that was something that the panel certainly wanted to um, make sure came across, um, not just in developing these um, these recommendations, this guideline um, consensus statement, but um, it, it, it's important that even though we're taking care of patients, we're not taking care of skin cancer. So I think that everyone would agree that basal cells are, um, basal cell skin cancers are less, the least aggressive type skin cancers that we treat in our clinics. But that being said, we, we can see some pretty aggressive ones. So I think that that was one of the more clear-cut skin cancers, but certainly there were exceptions that were made even early in the pandemic. What the recommendations ultimately come come down to uh, is really uh, even independent of COVID. This is sort of a systematic review of the impact of surgical delay on patient outcomes, right? And I I think that data is probably the cleanest for melanoma simply because it's tracked in cancer registries and present in higher volume than Merkel cell and slightly more difficult to ascertain for squamous cell. Mm-hmm. So knowing what we know about squamous cell carcinoma, what were the recommendations sort of in the setting of the peak PPE and infection prevention uh, setting, what was the recommendation or is the paper's recommendation for squamous cell carcinoma? So, so with respect to the, the recommendations for, you know, squamous cell, um, you know, we felt as, uh, as a group that, um, you know, you could reasonably delay treatment for patients who had, you know, Brigham and Women's T1 to T2A disease for, you know, two to three months, um, unless, you know, there was rapid, you know, growth or the patients were symptomatic or immune suppressed or, or otherwise felt to be, you know, at high risk for progression or complications if treatment wasn't initiated early. We felt like, you know, patients with T2B and higher disease, you know, should be prioritized, um, but that if you know, a, but a one month or maybe even a two month delay was unlikely to worsen disease specific mortality, although it, it might result in, in clinically meaningful progression in terms of the size of the tumor. Um, in terms of the, you know, even less aggressive earlier stage lesions, you know, the group felt that it would be reasonable, you know, to delay patients with, you know, squam in situs or, you know, well differentiated um, squames, you know, for, for three months. And that was consistent with the, what the, uh, most college, the ACMS issued recommendation. Um, I believe it was March 20th when they sent a message to all of the members that was quite helpful as well. Do you think that, well, let me back up for melanoma. We have some good studies that compare 30 to 60 to 90 day treatment delays with the resulting mortality. And so the benefit there again is cancer registry and a more measurable outcome like mortality versus squamous cell with a lack of a cancer registry uh, apart from the now growing mosaic registry. And a lot of surrogate endpoints. Certainly mortality is a big issue, but it's also about 
you know, the functional deficits that arise from neglecting a tumor, the, uh, the healthcare costs of larger reconstructions, et cetera. Do we have any data, uh, in this case, I assume retrospectively, on what those treatment delays mean for our patients? That's a really good question. So the studies that we've been able to, um, when we were coming through the literature to try and identify what is available in terms of treatment delays um, as it pertains to each of these skin cancers, um, just as you've mentioned, there are retrospective studies um, that try and correlate how treatment delay and treatment delay, it's important that kind of it's, it's defined in different respects. As most surgeons, we focus on the delays that occur between diagnosis and treatment. But even in the setting of this pandemic, there are going to be delays even in diagnosis. So um, there have been some retrospective studies that have um, discussed kind of treatment delays and the risk to disease specific mortality. Um, the, the big issue there is with a lot of those studies, there are confounders because this is not, this is not a randomized controlled trial. This is re retrospective study. And there are other confounders of the patients who are undergoing these treatment delays may have poor access to healthcare, unfortunately. They may have other neglect, as you mentioned. They, there may be other confounders that are um, impacting their care as well. So they're not clean studies to try and define exactly what what treatment delay does in the setting of a pandemic. Yeah, hopefully one of the many questions that independent of a pandemic, Mosaic Registry will be able to answer in the future. Because you're right, it is really a, a twofold issue i can i can have a very short wait as a mohs surgeon and be able to get patients access immediately but there's a backlog amongst general dermatologists or primary care providers then access for the patients even for the establishing of the diagnosis can be difficult um mm -hmm. let's talk about melanoma just because i think the data is is the cleanest there before we talk about the the recommendations uh, verbalized or written in the paper, what, um, what was sort of the foundation for the conclusions on melanoma? So, I mean, I think the, the melanoma question was a little easier for us to answer in some respects just because uh, the NCCN came out with guidelines during the time that we were actually developing kind of our recommendations as a, as a group. So those were available to us early on. The other guidelines um, were available only much later in the process. So we should have had the NCCN's uh, recommendations in mind. And I think that that uh, influenced all of our thinking to a large degree. And I think that the guidelines, you know, were, were felt to sort of make clinical sense to, to people. And when we delved into the literature, uh, particularly some of the, you know, large database studies from the National Cancer Database and others, you know, the results seem to be consistent. Again, some of the studies, retrospective studies looking at, um, uh, you know, Breslow thickness and that's impact on delay or, you know, the timing from biopsy to definitive wide local excision, you know, those kind of came back showing different findings than the National Cancer Database studies. So not finding that there was a difference in disease-free or overall survival in contrast to the NCDB studies, which, you know, did find a difference. So, you know, there is enough controversy, not a, a clear 
um, directionality to the study findings that, you know, made us think that the three month sort of recommendation for delaying, you know, T0 to T1 tumors, if there was no macroscopic residual disease, that that, you know, after biopsy, that, that was, you know, reasonable. And the ACMS, you know, adopted sort of the NCCN's recommendations and the, the British, um, you know, recommendations also sort of echoed this. So we felt like, uh, those recommendations made sense and seemed, you know, consistent with our general reading of the literature. And, and I would just add for future listeners, um, certainly this paper will be referenced in our library, but anybody who's not yet a, a member on the NCCN website, it's, it's a free sign up. And once you log in, you can get access to all of the sort of treatment algorithms that were sanctioned by the NCCN. And they're also a, a group that is known to provide updates throughout the year. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we get um, future updates from them as is deemed necessary. So um, we'll, we'll definitely encourage everybody to visit the NCCN website as well. And so uh, just to sort of summarize, what is the recommendation for melanoma now, or was it when, when uh, COVID was at its greatest uh, impact? So at its greatest, and so the NCCN just recently, so they initially made recommendations back in March and then have updated those recommendations, and it's overall quite consistent with their initial recommendations. They recommended that the treatment could be delayed up for up to three months for patients with T0 to T1 tumors if there's no macroscopic residual disease present after biopsy, and that treatment could be delayed for up to three months among patients with T2A and greater disease if biopsy margins are negative. Um, there's also, it's, it's important also that the NCCN weighed in that even how we approach a biopsy, um, if we suspect melanoma, really should be a more comprehensive, more thorough approach to try and achieve um, clinical margins um, at the very least, um, so that patients could comfortably wait um, during that time frame and um, not have an urgent need to come right back to clinic. Have you changed your practice with uh, regards to frozen section biopsies at the time of Mohs? multiple spots done at one visit or in other ways to to facilitate how often patients have to be seen? That's a great question. Initially, in the March timeframe, uh, we really tried to triage the most urgent skin cancers. Um, and it was just a discussion with each and every patient about their patient-specific risks to COVID exposure, as well as their specific skin cancer risk. Initially, it was prioritizing uh, melanomas, Merkel cells, rare tumors, and more advanced cutaneous squamous cell cancers. As ICU bed supply and PPE shortages have kind of stabilized and um, patient comfort in coming into clinic has also improved um, over the past few months, patients have been coming in. We have limited how many patients we see. I hold off on frozen section biopsies um, during MOS unless something looks quite advanced um, and needs urgent attention. 
during this pandemic. And I also, um, for patients that have multiple tumors, um, I always offer them to take care of multiple tumors um, with Mohs for the sake of their time efficiency. Especially during this time, since we're limiting the amount of patients that we see initially, it's prioritizing kind of the more advanced tumors and talking with patients about tackling more than just one tumor, especially if they have more aggressive tumors um, and doing multiple on the same day. Now that we can limit, um, that we continue to limit how many patients we see and we keep them in the room, I talk with them about, I'm happy to take care of multiple skin cancers as I always have been. Um, it does tack on some time to their day. So some patients are for or against that. Um, and we just have very honest, very open conversations about risks and benefits and what is consistent. It's, it's very much a joint decision-making process and taking care of patients um, on an individual case-by-case -case basis. For both of you, um, you know, you're in procedural subspecialties or you're offering something that requires specialized equipment. Is there nevertheless a role for telemedicine to any part of what we do? Even before COVID, um, in my practice, I've provided my cell phone to my patients so they're able to get um, in touch with me uh, whenever they have any questions um, after our surgery. Um, I found that, if, if anything, what has changed is um, that patients are more inclined to favor phone calls. During the pandemic, um, many have voiced how happy they are in terms of talking about any concerns by phone rather than coming in to see me postoperatively. So, if any, I certainly believe that there is a role for telemedicine and even our procedural subspecialties. And uh, what it has meant to my practice is um, it has decreased the amount of consults that we do prior to surgery. I offer same day consults and surgery. And patients are more inclined to take me up on that, especially if we're able to have a, if, if they choose to have a phone conversation before their surgical visit. And then afterwards, just in terms of post-op visits, I offer them to come back in to see me or to talk by phone or to use video, um, FaceTime, Doximity, all of these different apps that are available. Far more patients are opting for um, telephone calls to triage some of their post-op questions or uh, pre-op questions in terms of the consults. Brian, I want to get to your side of, of this as well, but I think this is really valuable for our our listeners, because I too have have transitioned both in terms of using more dissolvable sutures in my reconstructions and also to telemedicine. Uh, for me, that's the Doximity platform or through our uh, Epic Electronic Medical Record. And Kelly, I'd be curious for, for video visits or telephone visits. Are you using your support staff in any way in terms of receiving photos to save HIPAA email inboxes, prepping questionnaires for patients, documenting the encounter, or is this sort of in some ways an increased work burden, uh, assuming that you're actually considering them e-visits or telemedicine visits with full documentation, et cetera? Good question. So uh, we have here at Washington University in St. Louis through Epic, we have a MyChart system, a portal. So most patients, we, we always encourage patients to protect the safety of their health information to send photographs, messages through the portal system. I do provide my cell phone to use if they, they 
it, it really it depends upon the patient. Some send messages through the MyTrip system and I, I respond on that system. Um, the ones who uh, contact me by cell phone, I um, document the telephone conversation. Um, I, I don't use my, my support staff is phenomenal. I, I have, I'm very lucky to have a remarkable team um, that really values patient care and putting patients first. When, when it comes to just patients calling my cell phone, I, I want them to have access to me um, even at any hour of the day or night. So some will use my cell phone and I don't necessarily um, push them to then use an Epic system. Um, but I, I do document um, it. There is some burden to it, but um, I would far prefer, especially in the setting of a pandemic as such, that uh, patients have access to me um, whenever they need it. And certainly, depending on which electronic medical record uh, one is using, uh, and uh, I suppose also which version, Epic does have capabilities also to send out automated messages to patients electronically um, three weeks out with uh, potentially a survey about concerns regarding the healing, the scar, pain, symptoms, etc., or requesting a photo to be uploaded. So. Uh, for those who have access to those features in Epic, it can make for a very nice structured visit that minimizes documentation and sort of makes it a very professional uh, type of follow-up visit uh, comparable to what we achieve in person. And I myself have done a fair number of video pre-op consults for those who weren't amenable to a same-day consult. Um, specifically because we do find ourselves between a rock and a hard place. The patient who's at highest risk for COVID is the old immunosuppressed patient who also has the highest risk of having a bad skin cancer and potentially also is the you know person who would really most benefit from a separate consultation and multidisciplinary care. Brian, asking you specifically, realizing that this is a, a DERM podcast, any tips from from your end for for telemedicine? Sure. So, um, I mean, I've really embraced uh, telemedicine. I, I think my department has. Uh, I, I find the Doximity app to be uh, very user friendly. Even my you know less tech savvy patients, I can do um, like video chat with uh, relatively little difficulty. All they have to do is click on a link um, in the text message, and it brings us up into you know, a screen where I can see them, they can see me. That's really helpful for, you know, examining the, the skin cancer lesion if, if I'm seeing them or looking at their scar, if they're a patient we're considering for post-operative radiation. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I think is relevant to all specialties, you know, particularly the uh, physicians who are ultimately the ones referring us patients is trying to encourage telehealth. And there are a lot of disincentives from a financial standpoint to telehealth. So um, Medicare, you know, reimburses telehealth at comparable levels to in-person visits, but most private insurers do not. And it's a minority of states in this country that have passed sort of telehealth um, payment parity laws that the insurance private insurers have to follow. So I think I would encourage everyone to become more educated on this topic and to help uh, public health during COVID by making telehealth as available as possible and to 
for physicians and, and offices, particularly small offices, to be able to provide uh, telehealth and not have that come at a significant financial cost to the practice. Uh, because the, the more we can use telehealth, the more we can keep patients out of ERs and handle issues before they snowball and, and become serious. And uh, amongst all of the suffering and, and chaos this has created, I do think if we fast forward, then embracing telemedicine may truly be one of the silver linings for the entire population of of this pandemic because with the platforms available, secure communication, and hopefully at some point equitable reimbursement, uh, especially in something as visual as dermatology or in your case, the follow-ups from radiation oncology maybe, um, it, it's sort of a no-brainer. I, I want to be mindful of of both your your time, Brian and, and Kelly. So, anything else that we haven't touched on uh, as it relates to your manuscript, again published in in Cancer, or in general management of COVID and our procedures. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, so, I I think it's just important to comment that we have a unique advantage in most to minimize exposure risks by providing patient care under local anesthesia in the outpatient setting. Um, while we don't have the same high risk of aerosolization of the viral particles as those um, procedures that are done under general anesthesia, it's just important to um, be aware that our surgeries are high risk for both patients and providers. And to just um, follow the guidelines that um, several different groups have published in terms of how to protect patients during this time. Four main principles, I think the New York Times actually just um, commented on these as well. Um, it's important to maintain social distance at least six feet, to wash your hands often, that's actually 20 seconds of scrubbing your hands with soap, to avoid touching your face and to wear surgical masks. I think that while all practices are different and while resources um, are different throughout the country, while um, how this virus has impacted um, our different geographic um, areas, has been different and continues to change, I think that it's, it's just important as providers that we keep these four principles in mind in providing um, patient care and keeping our patients safe during this time. We just really want to thank all of the co-authors that um, helped to provide this publication. We couldn't have done it without these incredible co-authors on our panel. Um, they, they each provided invaluable advice and guidance, especially to our two senior authors. Uh, Dr. Christopher Miller and Dr. Carlos Perez. We're, we're very grateful for everybody's contribution. Yeah, I'd just like to echo that. The uh, team uh, that we work with was was just terrific in putting this manuscript together uh, in record time, editing it and making sure that it was as evidence-based as it could possibly be. It was really a great collaboration of um, of, of both surgeons, radiation oncologists, and, and even infectious disease experts to um, to bring this together. So, uh, thank you to the co-authors. Well, Kelly, Brian, I, I want to thank you both for, for coming on the podcast. I certainly want to acknowledge the work of, of all the numerous uh, co-authors on this manuscript with Carlos Perez and, and Christopher Miller from Penn as the senior author. These will certainly be uploaded to the Mose ACMS uh, library. I want to thank you both for taking the time to chat with me today. 
I want to thank our listeners for their continued support and attention. Please continue to share this podcast, Brian, in this case, with all of the radiation oncologists you know, and certainly all of your trainees. And uh, please always feel free to let us know how we're doing or who you'd like to have on the show by contacting us at info at Uh, Thank you, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mohs Surgery.